Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Mirens. This week we are joined by Professor Gideon Christian, an assistant professor at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law. Professor Christian is the founder of the African Scholars Initiative, an organization which mentors scholars of African descent who intend to pursue higher education in Canada. Our topic today is whether Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, that's Canada's Immigration Department, is systemically biased against people from Africa. Professor Christian can be reached at asi.scholars at gmail.com. I can be reached at stephen.murins at larley.com. And Deanna can be reached at deanna at mccray.ca. I hope you enjoy today's episode and please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Why don't we begin with a summary of the initiative that you started, which is the African Scholars Initiative? So the um, African Scholars Initiative is uh, a Canadian registered charity. Uh, it originally was registered as a not-for-profit corporation and got a charitable status this year from Canada Revenue Agency as a charity organization. Um, African Scholars Initiative aims at um, identifying bright future scholars of African descent and attracting them to Canada to pursue graduate education. And we do this by providing information sessions to prospective international students of African descent, more like kind of selling Canadian education to them attracting the bright ones among them to come into Canada to study, providing them with the necessary information that will guide them through the admission process, visa or study visa application process, and also assigning them to professors of African descent in Canada who will mentor them through the process of their professional or international education in Canada with a view that these ones will of course eventually end up becoming Canadian academics, researchers and scholars. So that is uh, in a nutshell, the primary objective of African Scholars Initiative, also known as ASI Canada. And does the initiative help people with study permit applications or help with general public policy suggestions regarding study permit applications for people from Africa? Um, basically, we'll help with uh, study permit application process by providing information sessions. So we have um, Canadian immigration lawyers who are affiliated or who volunteer with us on pro bono basis to provide information session to this prospective uh, Canadian to international students. So we do organize webinars over Zoom, and uh, we do have a live turnout in some of our webinars. We have over 300 um, 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 prospective um, international students registering to get information about, you know, going through the admission process, the study visa application process. And we have been very successful in, of course, providing the information, but unfortunately, we have not been very successful in terms of 
the study permit approval aspect of it. And that is absolutely because that is beyond our control. We don't take the decision. Some other people take the decision. Yeah. When you started the initiative, did you uh, did you know about that the approval rate for Nigeria for study permit applications or for most African countries was low, or has this been a bit of a surprise? Um, well, we have always known that even before we started the initiative, because um, I mean, personally, I have tracked the study permit uh, approval rate. Um, I have tried the study permit approval rate for Nigeria since 2017. And one thing I have identified since tracking this approval rate since 2017 is that um, the approval rate has never gone up. The study visa approval rate for Nigeria has never gone up. It has always been on the decline. And it got to the lowest uh, in 2020 uh, when the approval rate was, I think, about 12%. So the statistics and so the, the tweet that I uh, did that I think you picked up and then subsequently, because the African Scholars Initiative um, started publicizing these statistics, made a little bit of media attention was that January 1 to May 31, 2020, the rate of approval for study permit applications for the top sense top 10 source countries was and i did it in alphabetical order bangladesh 27 percent colombia 66 percent india 51 percent iran 30 percent japan 97 percent korea south korea 95 percent nigeria 12 percent the people's republic of china 64 percent the Philippines, 57%, and Vietnam, 56%. So what immediately leaps out there is that the rate for Nigeria is extremely low compared to other top source countries of applicants. Africa or African countries in general have low approval rates. Uh, Rwanda, for example, 5%, Madagascar, 26%. Kenya 26, Ethiopia 18, and so on. And what was your first takeaway when you saw those that statistic, Gideon? Because I know you retweeted it. Uh, yes, I did, uh, Steve. And um, you know, I, I, re I recall the tweet you're talking about was uh, a tweet from your Twitter handle on 28th of August to, uh, 2021. Uh, when I saw that statistics, I wasn't surprised. Like I told you earlier, I've been tracking the approval rate, study permit approval rate for Nigeria since 2017. But I must also say that I was surprised because uh, I think that was the lowest I've ever seen, you know, to some extent. So when I saw it, it kind of confirms, of course, the fear or the impression members of that community have always had that they are being unfairly treated by Canadian immigration officials. But, you know, having that fear is one thing, but having something to back it up is another. They've always had that impression that, oh, we are being, they are being unfair, they are biased against us. So when that, tweet, when that tweet came out, it caught my attention. So I retweeted it. 
But Steve, you may also recall subsequently after this tweet, you also tweeted another report. That was the, uh, a report that was published by IRCC itself. And that was the Anti-Racism Employee Focus Group Research Report. You also tweeted that report. So what I read that tweet after, I read that report after you tweeted it. So what I did was to you know, have these statistics on one hand and then compare it with that report, the Anti-Racism Research Group report on the other hand. When you compare those two together, it forms a much bigger picture as to why the study permit approval rate for Nigeria and for the other African countries you've mentioned is very low. And if you refer to page 11 and page 12 of that report, you will see the reason why that is the case. Let me quickly, if you might permit me, raise some aspects of that report. In page 11 of the IRCC Anti-Racism Employee Focus Group Research Report. And what is important about this report is that it's not a third party report, it's a report from IRCC itself. Page 11, this is what was noted in that report. Widespread internal reference of African nations as the Deity 30, not isolated, but widespread reference. African countries are referred by IRCC officials as the Deity 30 nations. Then another part of it says, stereotyping Nigerians as particularly corrupt and untrustworthy. Such negative stereotype we are mentioned about certain other immigrant groups as well, but Nigeria or Nigerians were cited as an example, particularly often in our conversations. Now, let me take you to page 13. Page 13 highlighted the fact that participants in this report, who of course the researchers spoke with, express concern that the overt and subtle racism within IRCC itself impact outcome of decisions or decisions by the immigration officers relating to immigration application. So the racism in IRCC is not just limited to how minorities in IRCC, that is employees are treated, but that racism also extends to outcome by decision of decision by visa officers. And they gave example. The example I will, on page 13 says, discriminatory rules for processing immigration application from some countries or regions that are different than others. An example, additional financial document requirements for applicants from Nigeria. So this is another example of racism cited by that report in IRCC. So when you compare the, uh, this report with that statistics, 12% approval rate from Nigeria. What does it point to? It clearly establishes bias, discrimination, and racism against these individuals or against applicants from this particular country. Now, let us note the fact you've noted earlier, Japan and Korea has over 97% approval rate. Japan has uh, 97%. Korea has 
95%. Nigeria, which is also among the 12, I mean, the top 10, has 12%, which is the lowest among all of them. So this, uh, you know, uh, when you bring that tweet, these two tweets together, that is the data or the statistics and the report, I think it kind of paints the picture as to why Nigeria has such a dismal approval rate when it comes yeah. to study permit applications. What I found though is that to me, there's never any doubt as to why the refusal rate is so high. What I have always found though, is that, um, is that the, the reasons very rarely are overt in, um, in showing bias. And so it makes it very challenging to, um, to get at the, the root causes for the refusal rate in trying to challenge those decisions in federal court. Because often the very generic reasoning that you get just fails to get at the substantive systemic discrimination issues. Um, and you know the discretion that's being offered to officers is just so broad. Um, that I have found that sometimes, um, you know, that even just getting the, um, the court to grant leave in these applications has proven very challenging. Just to also provide some uh, additional context regarding this report, and we'll link to it in the show notes, was I think it was first reported by Blacklocks Media and then accessed... Um, published online by the department. And it was an anti, uh, the basic premise of the report was after the George Floyd murder in the United States, IRCC began taking a deeper look at the department's internal environment from an anti-racism lens. I'm just reading from the report, the executive summary. So IRCC did a survey and we don't actually have the hard responses to the survey but they published a summary of responses that they received from their own employees as to concerns about possible racism within the department. So what Gideon is mentioning in terms of a reference to a dirty 30 or that Nigeria needs extra documents or that certain countries are just untrustworthy are all things reported by people at IRCC. So it did provide the report a unique insight into what might be behind those statistics. Yeah, and I think that the, the greatest challenge here is that um, I feel like um, the statistics show that there is something almost approaching disingenuous about the policy overall, stating that there's this great initiative to bring in uh, students um, from the designated countries. And yet the approval rate shows that, in, that there remains a real resistance to allowing those applications to be approved and for those persons to come through. So it's that kind of irony that in the actual judicial legal process, it's very, very difficult to get at. And uh, Diana, you know, uh, uh, for that to what you've you know, uh, noted earlier as to the ingenuity, you know, most cases, of course, this refusal 
a study permit refusal, they just send you a boiler, they send the applicant a boilerplate reason. I'm not satisfied that you, you're a genius student because, uh, you know, financial uh, assets and, you know, some just some boilerplate points take off. But sometimes when these cases go to judicial review, when you get the court record or maybe a GCMS note, you know, trying to get the reason for decision, uh, you kind of tend to find out some of the things that were noted in this report being evident in that detail. Well, not that detail, but at least the reason for decision given. Let me cite an example of a recent um, JR by the um, federal court, and that is the case of um, Irepen and Citizenship and Immigration Canada. This was reported in 2021, FC 1276. It was a decision released late last year. You know, this particular case caught my attention because I kind of tried, after reading this report, I kind of tried to uh, look at some of these JR, study permits refusal JI, and see the link between this report and maybe the reason for decision there. Now, this case I have set, uh, cited was a case of a Nigerian uh, lady who was applying to come to Canada to study. She got admitted. She was being funded. or She'd been sponsored by her husband. Her husband is a print journalist with a very prominent news media in Nigeria. He submitted his bank statement. When the visa officers, uh, the visa office in Nairobi, the visa office in Nairobi is responsible for processing study permit application from Nigeria. When they cited the bank statement from her sponsor, they quickly concluded that that bank statement was fraudulent. There was no basis for that conclusion. They right. sent a procedural fairness letter to her that they have reason to believe that the bank statement she submitted was fraudulent. So they requested that she go back to her bank and get a particular and specific type of bank statement. Now, the husband went back to his bank, got the bank statement along with a cover letter from the bank indicating that this account is genuine. Then the husband, of course, attached a letter with this statement telling them that he found it very, you know, um, uh, that he objects to the fact that they are associating him with fraud, that he is a respectable and reputable journalist in Nigeria, and that he really found it offensive that he is being associated with fraud. That this mm. is the statement, if they have any doubt, they should call the bank to verify. By then, this case has gone, of course, before this second aspect, the case went on judicial review, Department of Justice made an offer, it was withdrawn and sent back to Nairobi. That was when they requested this bank statement, resulting in this new statement and later from the sponsor being sent. When the second immigration officer was looking at the file, he noted that the allegation of fraud was baseless. Okay, but that he is going to refuse the application. And the reason why he's refusing the application or reconsideration is because the specific type of bank statement that was requested was not the one produced. Not that the bank statement was fraudulent, mm. but that they requested a particular type of bank statement and that was not produced. That was the reason for the refusal. Yeah. That case have to come back to the federal court again for the second time, resulting in the decision that was made in this case. So now compare that with the report, what that report noted, you know, 
discriminatory treatment of Nigerians in terms of additional financial document requirements, the systematic uh, uh, reference to Nigerians as particularly being corrupt and untrustworthy, even when there is no particular verification of the financial statement submitted by this applicant, the visa officer, by merely looking at it, they already have that biased mind that, oh, another Nigerian applicant, this must be a fraudulent bank statement. Let's send a section 40 procedural fairness later. You know, yeah. that decision is still back at the visa office now after two judicial review. Yeah. Unbelievable. And unfortunately, these, these, uh, uh, you know, I think that the, the onus that this puts on the applicant is tremendous in the sense that um, I think in this case, um, even, even here, the bias was quite overt, but sometimes it's quite invidious in the sense that the officer will just say something more generic, like, I just do not find that you will return to the country at the end of the period authorized for your stay. It doesn't mean that that inherent bias is not still operating in that same way. Um, but it just means that you don't have something that you can point your finger at to show bias. But this, um, this is something that I have tried arguing numerous times um, at the court, that sending people on this kind of merry-go-round of judicial review applications where they get a refusal on one basis, they go to the court, they get the GCMS notes, they get a settlement, it goes back to the visa office. They find another reason for refusing, it goes back to the court. You know, I've been trying to persuade the court to make more cost orders or to provide more direction because there needs to be a way of stopping this systemic discrimination and not having it just be, try again, try again, you know, because it just doesn't seem like that's that's having any impact in um, the overall tenor of decision-making at the visa offices. You know, Diana, I think um, immigration lawyers uh, handling this judicial review also need to be ingenious by asking for directed verdict from the court. I mean, I know that's it's a very right. difficult... Yeah, I've tried about six times and every time I have been refused um, and I've had maybe six specific. Uh, I now ask for it on every single judicial review application. That's a study for permit refusal. I've had only one cost order that was issued and it was again on a second um, attempt, but it was the first in my career where the judge was like, this is egregious, but I can show you six other cases where it was a situation like this, where I feel like it wasn't just an error, but it was a real miscarriage of justice in terms of how the application was handled. And the court has said, an error is not sufficient to warrant a directed verdict. And I feel like this is a misinterpretation. Like I think Vavilov really did say that the court should take a more active role. And I 100% agree with you that directed verdicts should be the order of the day. All I'm saying is that the court is at this point in my experience, not willing to grant them. Um, I have not yet found a judge that was that would even really take seriously my arguments on directed verdict. Okay, well, I, I think, um, I mean, uh, I, I don't think, Dan, I don't think you and your colleagues uh, should be deterred in doing this because uh, mm. I feel um, these immigration <laughs> officers are actually getting away with this and that is why it has persistently continued. And this is not good for anyone. 
It's not no. good for the Canadian judicial system because right now the federal court is overwhelmed with judicial review I applications, agree. especially from IRCC. Majority of the JR judicial review application in federal court are from they come from the uh, from IRCC. Now, an applicant applies for a study permit. They have everything that is necessary for to get an approval. They are refused. They go to the federal court. They have to hire a lawyer. Judicial review is not cheap. You're looking at minimum of about $3,000. Immediately, you file the application. Department of Justice lawyers looks at it and oh, we offer an, uh, make an offer to settle. We draw it and we send the past for a consideration. And of course, you don't get a refund for your lawyer fee if you are the applicant. Yeah. It is withdrawn and sent back to Nairobi for a consideration. It either they yeah. refuse it on the same ground on some other unreasonable ground. You don't come yeah, back I to agree. your lawyer again and go to federal court for a second time. And maybe this time around, fortunately, the federal court uh, uh, overturned the decision. You don't have to go back again to the visa office. Now, this is something that the visa officer will have gotten right at the first instance. They will have sent, saved the applicant lots of money, probably $8,000 in judicial course. They will have saved the federal court lots of resources of having to review an application they shouldn't even be looking at in the first place. I agree. So I think it is time for federal courts to also take a proactive approach in dealing with these things to send a message to the judicial officers that, no, look, you need to get this right at the first instance. Oh my God, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I, I really to... couldn't agree more. And honestly, I mean, I would say that um, that uh, in terms of your earlier comment about not giving up on the request for directed verdict, I agree with that. I think every lawyer should be requesting it. And even though they might be prepared to lose on this request every time, I think everyone should be doing it. At the same time, I just feel like maybe it's not enough and that there must also be a strategic initiative to lobby the government to do something in terms of like going directly to the visa offices. We can't expect this problem to be remedied through litigation entirely because the burden is so massive on the applicants and because um, you know, because, and, and like what you said about the, the Department of Justice and the federal court being overwhelmed by litigation right now, my experience has been that it used to be much easier to negotiate a settlement at the very early stages. But right now, because the Department of Justice is so overwhelmed by litigation, that sometimes the lawyers there, much as they would like to, they don't even get the opportunity to fully review the record until like a few days before their record is due. And as a result, they're not really engaging with their client at the visa office and trying to convince them that this is a settling case. So I feel like early yeah. settlement has been compromised. I think the court has taken that up because I've noticed um, they just they just issued a directive that now requires the Department of Justice to actually um, to indicate whether or not they are willing to settle before the case actually goes before a judge on a leave decision. They need to indicate that they have turned their mind to the possibility of settlement. Um, and that is a new directive that clearly is geared toward like, the court recognizing that a lot of these cases that should have been settled are still ending up before the justices. And so I think that that's some indication that there's some recognition, but it's still, again, it just feels like it's not enough. Yeah. I want to take, a, I, I mean, as the, you've noted judicial review 
is often only as good as the reconsideration yeah. and what goes on during the reconsideration. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's systemic issues, judicial review and individual files may not be the best way to address them. Some people may have not be familiar with the overall landscape for Nigerians and other people from Africa applying for temporary residence applications and heard the stats that we just read about study permits. And they might be wondering, well, that's one data point. You know, is it the same for temporary residence applications? Is it the same for permanent residence applications? And I want to just touch quickly on those other programs because they sim- there's similar issues that arise for uh, people from Nigeria. So I've pulled up the processing times right now. If you go to the IRCC website for a work permit, and I did just three countries that have a high volume of applicants and Nigeria. So for China, people from China, you're looking at 13 week processing time, India, 31 weeks, Iran, 15 weeks, Nigeria, the processing time right now for a work permit, according to the IRCC website is 69 weeks. So over a year, double most of those other visa posts, actually double all of the other visa posts in some cases, three to four times as high. And then from another tweet that I did for January to May 2020, the work permit approval rate was under 50% uh, for Nigeria. I don't have the exact approval rate, but you're looking at in the work permit context, a very long processing time for an application that is likely to be refused. Similarly for temporary resident visas, uh, I don't have the processing times in front of me, but it's under 50% and it's been dropping. There's been a decline in temporary resident visa applications for all, for most countries, but Nigeria is, I just am looking at the stats from 2011, 56%, 2015, 58% to 2020 was 38%. And you can compare that to say China, 87% approval rate, India, 62%. Uh, So again, you have Nigeria is about half some of the other top source countries. So it's not Uh, a permit issue. Yeah. Steve, thanks for the statistics and, you know, for, for your observation. Now, l- let me add, of course, we've already established now when it comes to study permit application, Nigeria is among the top 10. Actually, Nigeria is number three after India and China, followed by Nigeria. That does not just apply to study permit, but also other, I mean, the statistics is similar for other application, temporary resident visa, a permanent residency, and others. In Africa, uh, uh, Canadian immigration application, Nigeria has the highest when it comes to Canadian immigration application. But guess what? None of that immigration application is processed in Nigeria. Canada Embassy or Canada High Commission does not have any visa processing, does not do any visa processing in Nigeria, notwithstanding the fact that the bulk of the application are coming from this country. Initially, it was done in Ghana, and then it was moved from Ghana to Nairobi. Now, commonsensically, if most of the applications are coming from a particular country, it's reasonable to develop your, to have your resources in that country for the purpose of processing those applications because um, 
uh, uh, visa officers in that country will have better knowledge about country condition there than having visa officers in a country far away from you know the 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 application country processing those applications. So the question then is why is IRCC never making any effort to establish visa processing in Nigeria, notwithstanding the fact that the bulk of the application are coming from Nigeria? Number three, when it comes to study permits worldwide. I kind of wonder too whether or not um, whether or not that would change the uh, the overall approval rate in a positive direction or in a negative direction because anecdotally we've always heard from our clients that the locally engaged staff are among the toughest to get past and I don't know where that comes from but that's just what we always hear from our clients. Well, then I think the problem goes beyond. I mean, the solution goes beyond just one point. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, okay, they have um, a visa processing office in Nigeria that will solve the problem completely. Mm-hmm. No. But I mean, that is just commonsensical thing to do in terms of, you know, devoting resources, like kind of putting your money, as they say, where your mark is. Exactly. But what we have here is. When you look at IRCC, I mean, I'm not just saying this as a Nigeria. I've spent years studying this. There seems to be a kind of systemic discrimination bias against individuals from this particular country. I mean, I'm not saying that's not the case for other African countries. But Nigeria happens to be unique because of, Mm -hmm. of course, the size of application coming from Nigeria kind of makes it obvious. And this is limit. I mean, if you look at the various programs, initiatives IRCC has in place, when you compare them with similar initiative in Nigeria, you find out that Nigeria, the one in Nigeria, is always dif- different. It either has lower approval rate or it has more onerous requirement. Now, let me give you an example. Coming back or maybe taking us back to study permit, there is the SDS, which is the uh, Student Direct Stream, which uh, IRCC uses in processing application for countries like uh, uh, um, Brazil, China, Colombia, Costa Rica, India, Pakistan, Morocco, and others. There is equivalent of, let me use the word equivalent in quotes of similar program in Nigeria, known as the Nigerian Student Express, which is aimed at expediting the processing time for study permits. Now, look at these two programs, compare these two programs and tell and see how different they are, even though they are geared towards the same objective. Under the student direct stream, applicants are required to show GIC, that is uh, Guaranteed Investment Certificate of just $10,000. So you can just go to your bank, obtain a GIC of $10,000 and apply or meet the requirements or one, the main requirement for application under the student direct stream. Right. Now, under the Nigerian Student Express, which is a similar program, the applicant is required to show that they have the equivalent of 30,000 Canadian dollars within the last six months, within a 12-month banking period in the account. SDS $10,000, just GIC of $10,000, a document. Whereas right. It's not just the money, 
but you have to show that the money has been in your account of for course. six months over a 12 month period. Yeah. So why is that different? Why does the Nigerian have to work three times harder or yeah. show document three times more than the person in the SDS program? Now, this is just one. We've not even talked about the language requirements under the NCE program, which is also another discriminatory element of the program. Right. Yeah. Actually, it does yeah. seem like there is a very small office in Lagos. Um, it's definitely small compared to applications with similar sized application volumes, which probably explains the really slow processing time. Um, yeah. So why, so I'm going to, the, the argument that I think may be made to justify the low approval rate, and I'm not saying that it is a right argument, but it's one that I can see being made are refugee claims and refugee claims from Nigeria, which was, and I've just pulled up some stats. It's the, it was the number four source country uh, with a 32% approval rate for claims. The top five countries were India, Mexico, Iran, Nigeria, Colombia. And of course, all of those, well, Mexico, you don't need a visa to come to Canada and India, Iran, and Colombia have higher approval rates than or have higher temporary residence approval rates than Nigeria. But in your interactions with the government um, or with stakeholders has or have refugee claims um, been raised as a reason for the low approval rate? Um, I do not think a refugee application has anything to do with the low approval rate. And I don't think there's a correlation between the two. I mean, you mentioned earlier that India also has a high refugee application rate, but mind you, India has 51% approval rate. Nigeria has 12. So yeah. I don't think that refugee um, application has anything to do with it. And one thing I noticed, um, you know, when you have a lot of refugees streaming through the US border, especially my communication with, you know, people from the Nigerian community. You know, there were a lot of, you know, Nigerian, uh, Nigerians crossing over the border from US, you know, to claim refugee status in Nigeria. But what you find now is this fact that um, these are actually, some of these are people who have actually applied, you know, for temporary resident visa to Canada and they are refused. They go to US embassy, and get a visa and they go to US and from US they cross the border. What does that tell you? When you deny people opportunity to do things the right way, yeah. they will look for the wrong way to do it. Yes, exactly. It seems to me that it goes to the same uh, overall issue with the way that in, in, in my view, uh, put not subtly is that the the way that our refugee process is structured is that it kind of, it almost criminalizes uh, making a refugee claim. Like, I mean, if you were to apply for a study permit and have an ultimate intention to become a permanent resident, that's considered dual intent. 
But if you're applying for a study permit and you're genuinely intending to study, but you also have the potential to make a genuine refugee claim, the fact that the idea that you might be subject to persecution somehow undermines your ability to make a genuine study permit claim, I think that is a fundamentally problematic proposition. It's a problematic proposition. I do think it's a proposition that does exist. Um, and just going back to the specific issue, Gideon, you mentioned the border crossings. I remember in 2017 or 18, let me just Google a quick. Yeah, so there were media reports in April 2018. This is just from CTV News. And the headline is, quote, Canada working with U.S. to stop Nigerians using U.S. visas as ticket to Canada. And that's the headline. And the article just gets into how you mentioned that the U.S. like Nigerians were able to get visa approvals to the U.S. The Canadian government actually tried to intervene with the Americans to start refusing Nigerian applications destined for where they thought that people might actually just be going to the United States to then come to Canada. I can't think of any other scenario or country where I've heard Canada proactively doing that. I don't know if you re recall that, Deanna. I know in uh, the Kenny um, administration or when Kenny was Jason Kenny was minister, they put up signs in Canada paid for signs in Hungary to try to deter yeah. Roma individuals from coming Roma, to Canada yeah. to claim refugee status. But I can't think of anywhere but in this context with Nigeria, where the Canadian government actively tried to work with the United States to reduce their own approval rates. Yeah, uh, Steve, I do remember that uh, period. I do remember uh, Ahmad Hussein was actually the immigration minister then. I, I do remember Ahmed Hussein actually going to Nigeria to try to dissuade Nigerians from going, coming to Canada through US. But let us be realistic. What is the appropriate way to solve that problem? If you have situations with such low visa approval rates in that region, this becomes inevitable. The only way to address this problem is to make it legal. Give people the opportunity to come in here legally, stay legally, or leave if they want to. Yeah. If you shut the door for them to come in legally, the other option they may probably try to do is to climb the fence to come in. Mm. So I think this problem can be solved by addressing the systemic bias and discrimination against these individuals who IRCC term as dirty 30. Yeah, I if think that the, the notion... To come in. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead then. No. I, I was just thinking that like this idea that... Um, people seek an opportunity to raise a refugee claim. Like the thing about the way that I look at it and that my refugee clients look at it, it is that making a refugee claim is the last possible um, option, the last possible option, the last thing that they wish to do. If they have the option to come on a study permit and to immigrate, that is by far the thing that everyone would prefer to do. And the idea, um, you know, um, 
you know, and I'm seeing this even with clients from Afghanistan now that many who were here who were like trying to immigrate, like nobody wants to be a refugee claimant. Um, you know, you only do that when the ways of actually coming, working as a, being a student, uh, earning your right to permanent residency when that is foreclosed. So it's not sort of like this is going to be used as a scandalous meal ticket in order to get a free ride. Nobody sees the refugee claim process as a free ride um, who's actually in that situation. Um, if they could actually, you know, do it without telling the story of all of these traumas and tragedies that have happened to them, then they would far prefer to. And so, um, as Gideon, you've said, like creating um, a, a, a clear, legitimate way that people can come to Canada and improve their, their situation without having to go through that claims process um, really ameliorates the situation. It's not about telling them not to do it in this other way. Yeah. And, you know, um, if I may also add here at um, ASA Canada, uh, we began recently compiling database of um, professors in, I mean, of course, this is related to our study or our work, of course, in attracting, you know, bright, bright future scholars of African descent to come into Canada to study. And of course, uh, you know, um, move on from there. So far, we've identified large group of professors in Canadian universities well, of African descent. Specifically, I mean, I'm not saying our database is, you know, that completely accurate, but at least it's huge enough to kind of paint a better picture of what the situation is. Currently, from our database, we have about 60 professors in Canadian universities, not colleges, just universities, 60 professors in Canadian universities who are from Nigeria or who are of Nigerian descent. Majority of these, including myself, came into Canada as international students. We had our education, completed our education, became permanent resident, transitioned to you know, uh, positions in the universities. I worked as a lawyer at the Department of Justice for six years before joining the University of Calgary as an as assistant professor. So, what we're saying is that you know the immigration process, if we're able to create a good immigration process, it's a win-win for everyone. Exactly. You know, the international students seeking to come in to study in Canada, it's a win for them because they are given opportunity to acquire world-class education. It's also a win. And the statistics has it here that Canada makes over $22 billion annually from economic activities by international students. That is a boost for our economy. These international students come in here, and I, let me add here that the study pa uh, permit process is actually the most lucrative aspect of our immigration program. Why yeah. do I say that? Let me give you an example. If I come in into Canada as a skilled worker, permanent resident as a skilled worker, all I needed, all I, part of the requirement, of course, is that I should have a particular amount of money to settle. When I come in here, I go to rent a house. I rent this house and pay the same rent a Canadian pay. In fact, governments have programs that provide free training for me as a permanent resident to settle. You know? Now compare that to, study, to the study permit process. International students, when they come in here and go to our universities, they don't pay the same tuition as Canadians pay. They pay twice, at least twice, more than Canadian. 
they come into Canada, they bring their foreign exchange to Canada, their money to Canada, that boosts our economy. They pay us to educate them. And they pay very well because they pay more than the Canadians. Canadian. And when they are educated, we make profit or money. The Canadian institutions make money by admitting them and educating them. When they are educated, we will have equipped them for the Canadian labor force. They transition from paid education and they go on to continue to contribute to our economy. And they so also tend if, to be workers for many years before they're able exactly. to regularize their status as permanent yes, residents. That's what's exactly. And, and even in terms of the, the, the source funds that you require as a skilled worker, anyone who has a job offer is, is not required to bring those source yeah. funds. So, uh, exactly. so yeah. And so, if you're a student, if you're a student, if you're a student applicant or study visa applicant, the proof of form required is far more than that required. Oh of my goodness. Yeah. So you really have to show that you have the money. Yeah, you know? for sure. So, so I, I don't, I, what I'm trying to highlight is the fact that this high study permit refusal rate is not good for Canada. It's not good for anyone because by keeping these students away, by refusing their study permit application, you're also harming the economy. The Canadian institutions suffer because they admit these students hoping that when they come in, they're gonna come in with their phone and these students don't come in to study because the visa officers has declined, refused their study permit application. So the students lose the opportunity the universities also lose the funding. Canadian economy suffered because of these individuals are kept away. So at the end of the day, this high study permit refusal application from these countries is not really good for Canada. And when you go forward to look at the reason for the refusal, as evident in this report, because these people are deemed to be dirty, they are deemed to be corrupt and untrustworthy, even when you don't have any, when there is no evidence to prove that. That affects or adversely impact our reputation as, you know, as a fair, I mean, a democracy built on fairness and transparency. I mean, this is not who we are in, as Canada, in Canada. We don't refer to people as dirty. We don't refer to them as corrupt and untrustworthy when there is no evidence to show that. So I, I think um, the decision by these visa officers in Africa, especially, especially the visa office in Nairobi, Kenya, really, really is a cause for concern. Canada visa office in Nairobi, Kenya is today referred to as one of the worst visa office abroad. In fact, some lawyers I have spoken with, what they tell me is that when they have clients from Africa, that they prepare their study permit application in anticipation of litigation. Oh yeah, I do. I kind of, I kind of try to find out what does that mean? They say, well, when we prepare it, we're preparing it knowing that it is highly likely going to be refused and that we're going to end up in court. So when we're preparing it, we prepare with a view to litigation. I call it a JR-proofed application. That's my terminology yeah, that I use with use my as clients. Well. <laughs> yeah, it has to be JR-proofed because I tell clients that there's like a 90% chance we're going to end up in court. And I quote them my litigation fees at the outset because I know they're going to incur them and I don't want people going and not at least being able to make an informed decision about whether they want to pursue this because I'm just being realistic, you know? It's terrible. It is, it is. It's tragic, yeah. 
Yeah. So I what had one do you question think, for yeah. you though, if I may, um, sure. before you get to this, Steve, is that um, you talked about this thing about the directed verdict. And I'm wondering, um, are you seeing anybody else having success in trying to get the um, the courts to direct verdict? Um, this is something that I've been looking at very closely. I'm just interested if you've seen any successful or positive you know, decisions in this respect. You know, Diana, I once, uh, some years back, um, I did some research on that directive verdict um, because um, uh, um, I was interested in, you know, um, I, I mean, I was concerned, of course, my concern from arising from the low study permit approval rate. And of course, the fact the the kind of ping pong between the, the federal court and the visa office in Nairobi, you apply, DOJ comes out with an offer, you withdraw, then send back to the consideration, refuse again. Yeah. So I actually recited, I, I, there are two cases, I can't remember the, I mean, I may probably send that to you when I recall. There are two cases I have seen where the directed verdict has been used with regards okay, to they're temporary probably the same ones that I've been citing. Yeah, let's, let's confer afterwards. I think either Ruthie or Ruthie or Ruthie. Rudder? I can't remember. Say Rudder, is that the one? Does that sound familiar to you? Okay. Yeah, that was the lady that wanted to come to. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of them. That's with regards to temporary resident visa. I mean, what I'm not saying that um, there has been high success, but you know, just like any argument, the more you continue to put that before the Exactly. When you see what the trend going on, I think the courts will be motivated at a point in time to send a strong message to these visa officers that look, you guys should get this right at the beginning, otherwise this is going to be the consequences. And I assure you, I, agree. The very I think there needs to be solidarity. Yeah, the very yeah. day federal court takes that position, there is going to be change. I agree. I 100% agree. But I think this quest, this call for solidarity among litigators, and I also think... Um, Maybe I'm just trying to figure out whether or not adducing this report as evidence, um, you know, attaching this to an affidavit in judicial review. I'm just kind of running this through in my mind because um, because this is something that should be taken into consideration. So I'm going to consider this in my next study permit visa office refusal application. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, I was in contact with the Calgary lawyer that um, handled the European case. Because after I read that case, um, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, if this report was out before that European case, mm-hmm. where the visa officers barely looking at a bank statement, concluded it was fraudulent. If this report was out, that would have been a very good report to include. For sure. And that JR to show that this is just, you know, systemic treatment of people from this particular Region. And so a cost order should report, have been issued yeah, in, that, exactly. in that case. 100%. That report, that report is a very strong tool for litigators who are doing yeah. JR of application coming from the so called Dati 30 countries. Because yes, this, is very... not a, this is a report from IDRC, I'm mean, sorry, from IRCC itself. Yes. Yeah, I'm very grateful for you bringing it to our attention, and uh, I will most definitely use it and commend it to to other listeners as well who are doing this type of litigation. Have you received any response to the report? Because right now we have, it's kind of a unique time in that there's both, as you mentioned, the statistics showing the abysmal Mm -hmm. approval ratings, as well as this report, which suggests that the most charitable interpretation is that some people at IRCC 
are like some employees at IRCC have raised concerns about either racism or at a minimum differential treatment for people from, as the report says, the dirty 30 and in particular Nigeria. Has there been any response at the political level that you're aware of? Um, so uh, you will recall, of course, the, um, that a group of Nigerian uh, professors and scholars in Canada did prepare a letter after this report came out. They did prepare a letter which they sent to, which was sent, uh, I think it was sent by about 27 Nigerian professors and scholars in Canadian universities. That letter was sent to the um, immigration minister highlighting concern with regards to the low or dismal approval rate, as well as the report, or this report is the, the, the um, report from IRCC um, itself. Uh, of course, uh, we, we got, I, I was also a signatory to that um, uh, later. Of course, the report we got from the minister's office was more like a kind of general statement that, oh, that, uh, you know, um, IRCC ensures that, uh, all study permit application mm -hmm. are treated fairly, regardless oh of God. country of origin and stuff Whoa. like that. In fact, even the response did not address the specific issues that were raised in that letter. And I wasn't surprised personally reading that response from the minister's office because I was expecting that. IRCC has continued to live in denial of reality that is by its officers. Denial. Namely, that the officers, the officers processing visa application relating to the dirty 30 countries, they are biased, they are discriminatory, and they are racist. The report establishes that this is not coming from me, this is coming from their own report. So I think it is proper for IRCC to actually sit down and consider how to address the issues raised in yes. this report. Because those issues are really they are damning on that department. For sure. I this is something that should to go to standing committee. Sorry, this yeah. is something that should go to standing committee and they should be doing a study in order to figure out what is the most, um, the most strategic and decisive way to address uh, the systemic racism issue and taking that as a point of fact that systemic racism is an issue. <laughs> Uh, then I did an access to information request after this report came out. I actually uh, yes. did an access to information request. I needed to get um, from IRCC documents and, and correspondence where uh, African countries, from their staff, where African countries are referred to as a dirty plate. Yes. Um, aside from this report, aside from the, this report, which was part of the um, disclosure, guess how many documents I got? I got just redacted four or pages not redacted. of documents. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, well, I mean, if I had gotten a re large document redacted, that would have been better than what I got. What I got was just four pages of documents, aside from this oh report. God. And those documents were inquiry that were made by a journalist who was trying to prepare a news report on this report. Aside from that, uh -huh. there's no documentation in IRCC Relating so to the just... reference of this dirty 30, even though the report said oh there's gosh. widespread reference by their staff. Wow, that's amazing. It's just the fantasy of interested parties and stakeholders and journalists. It's nothing, nothing. <laughs> well, and the wild. thing that gets me, and this is another issue a bit with the 
jurisprudence is like implicit in every one of these study permit refusals is the notion that either someone won't be a real student or they won't leave by the end of their stay in Canada. Yeah. The federal court presents this often as an issue of insufficient evidence, but really it's a visa officer determining that basically that someone's going to break the law, right? Either they aren't going to study or they won't leave by the end of their authorized stay. And we have a system now where for whatever reason, like the refusal stats suggests that IRCC collectively as a department believes that you know, in the Nigerian case, 88% of applicants from Nigeria will break the law. And you have similar low stats for, let's call it what it is, like predominantly black countries, countries in Africa, where the department seems to operate on the assumption that most people applying from those countries will break the law. I shouldn't say operates from the assumption. The results, like when you look at the results of the approval rate is a collective, you know, through the building up of individual determination after individual determination, a department which seems to year in, year out, reach the conclusion that people from Africa, the majority will break the law when they're here, which is just problematic. Yeah, uh, and uh, Steve, Steve, let me let me. I mean, that, well, I'll probably. I mean, if that that is the notion they operate on, but that is clearly unfunded. Let, let me give. I mean, let oh, me yeah. cite the Nigerian example. Oh, yeah. I keep oh, citing yeah, Nigerian example, saying. of course. Yeah, yeah, I keep citing Nigerian example because because of numbers. You know, um, we, we have over sixty Nigerian professors in Canadian universities currently, and that is the highest number in terms of any country from Africa. So would this, most of these, I mean, most of these professors came in here as international students. They didn't break the law, they moved to, let me give you, let me pause here and give you a particular specific example. Um, I have a colleague, she's a, a professor in, of computer science in Dalhousie University. Her name is Rita Orji. She's also very popular on social media. Uh, Rita Orji graduated from a Nigerian university as the best graduating student in her school. Uh, she got a scholarship to come in to study in Canada, very bright student. But when she applied to the Canadian, for Canadian study permit, she was refused. And the reason was because uh, she's not a bona fide or genuine student. She applied to a university in Turkey. The university in Turkey not only offered her admission and scholarship, they processed her study permit sent her the study permit and they mailed her her visa and study permit. She went to Turkey, she did her masters. While in Turkey, she tried Canada for the second time. This time she was fortunate. She was approved by the visa office in Ankara. So she came into Canada and did her PhD. She graduated from her PhD. She is now an associate professor of computer science in Dalhousie University. She is a Canada research chair in Dalhousie University. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of uh, Canada, RSC. Last year, she was voted as one of the most influential women in her field in Canada. Now, mind you, this is the same person that the visa office in Africa has decided some years back that she is not a genuine student. 
Now, imagine if she had not tried for the second time, how oh, much Canada would have lost. And, and it's actually imagine... quite astonishing that she kept trying, considering trying. the yeah. insult of that, you know? of that decision. <laughs> Um, no, I totally agree. And actually going to the point that you made about a JR proof application, I have to admit somewhat shamefully that sometimes what I recommend to people in order to prove their likelihoods of success is that if they have been to a European country in the interim period, that that improves their likelihood of success. And it's insane, but it is, I understand that it's factual. Like I just have seen from my own cases that somebody who has done, you know, an African country to a European country and then to Canada, the success rate just is higher because somehow now they have more credibility now that they have been admitted to and spent time in a European country. Well, that's, again, you get it's that sort from of like, uh, internal notes when you see that no comparable international travel. Yes, the exactly. The implicit thing being comparable <laughs> means. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's not like, you know, um, and there is a, a ranking of what is a sufficiently um, Canadianized uh, environment. Um, and mm -hmm. even though like the litigation says that comparing socioeconomic conditions is not a viable thing, it's just done in a more covert way. But the exact same thing is done by comparing the comparable travel. Um, it's, still, it's still done. It's just the wording is much more guarded. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where, and you talk about the real reasons for refusal, one of the things that the federal court will often note is, uh, you know, visa officers are often located in the country, they have country-specific expertise, you almost never see any anything related to what could be country-specific expertise mentioned yeah, in the actual refusal true. notes. It's true. Yeah. Um, get, uh, well, well, I mean, okay. Oh, I was going to ask, well, you're specialization is artificial intelligence um, at the University of Calgary. Do you think we've had a few episodes on artificial intelligence and immigration? Do you think that for, I'll just refer to it as the dirty 30 countries, since we don't know which countries they are, that artificial intelligence will be good for applications processed for people from those countries or bad or neutral? Uh -huh. Well, uh, thanks, Steve, for, you know, uh, pulling me back now to my comfort zone. Uh, because that's, <laughs> that, that is what I do for a living. So um, immigration aspect of uh, uh, my work is more like, uh, I refer to that as my night job. So uh, let me go back to my day job now. We are more <laughs> comfortable. You know, uh, Steve, I mean, I research on uh, artificial intelligence and law at the University of Calgary Law Faculty, and it's an area I've been working on. Uh, for a while now, even um, while at the Department of uh, Justice before uh, leaving. Um, artificial intelligence is a tool. It's a very good tool. But just like most tools, I think it depends on what you're using it for, you know, and how it is used. That will actually depend. That will, that, that, I think that would be my answer, whether it would be a good thing or a bad thing. But let me say that, um, you know, there is this popular gap, I mean, uh, lingo in computer terminology, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. uh, artificial intelligence thrives on data. Okay? Yeah. The outcome, it depends on the data you use to train the technology. 
Okay. This is exactly what if, our previous guest said to, to, exactly. to this question, by the way, Gideon, yeah. Yeah. So if you use good data to train AI algorithm, it will produce good results. If you use biased data, it will produce biased results. So AI is not like a laundry machine. You pour bad data, then it launders it and regurgitate good data. No, that doesn't happen. Now, what, yeah. I'm just saying this as a kind of preamble to my answer to your question. We, I mean, in the course of this conversation, we have discussed and highlighted the bias discrimination evidence in immigration decision by these visa officers. If you are training AI technology, what data for me for use in the immigration context, the question I'm going to be asking, what data are you using to train that AI technology? Are you going to be using the same bias data with 88% refusal rates to train the AI technology to make decision on application from this particular region? If you are, the result is not going to be any way different from what we have now. So, it's still it's a case just going of, to be know, engendered. It's just going to become rigid and established and and exactly. uh, and more impermeable because and, yeah, yeah. And you know, Diana, the problem here is that you know, as humans, we have this uh, moral comfort with decisions made by technology. We view that, oh, technology is unbiased, they are fair. And that is a problem here. They, well, they are if the data is unbiased. So what we have is a situation whereby if you apply this technology, this technology is basically going to adopt the same bias of human decision makers. So right. in that case, will that, be, uh, uh, or will that be a good thing? Absolutely not. It's still the same problem, if not worse. Now, I don't have details about the AI technology IRCC is using. Of course, some of these are still enshrined in secrecy and trade secret. So I may not be able to say what data they are using, but of course, it would be commonsensical to believe that the data they are using will be the data in the system, which is the same data we are complaining about here. And um, recently we have, well, we are still awaiting the federal court decision in um, Ukraine, which has to do with Chinook uh, software, yeah. you, you know. But there is one thing I would want to bring to your attention to show you the danger of, you know, using technology in the immigration context. There are two cases I would like to bring to your attention here. There are very recent, I mean, uh, JR cases at the federal court from arising from determination made by the Canada Visa Office in India. And that is the case of Gill, G-I-L-L, and Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, reported in 2021, FC 1441. It's also the case of Singh and Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, S-I-N-G-H, reported in 2021, FC 828. Now, these oh, it's so nice that cases, we have the neutral citations. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, I got them from Canley, and that's a good thing about Canley, free access yes, to yeah. exactly. this information. Yeah. So now these two cases have to do with misrepresentation or alleged misrepresentation by the applicants. The applicant filed work permits. They disclosed that they have been refused previous visa application, but they did not disclose U.S. visa refusal. 
which of course automatically trigger the section 40 procedural fairness later and their response. Now, I don't wanna go into detail of the case, but one thing you notice from these two cases is this. The decision in these two cases made by two different visa officers was exactly the same. The reason for the decision was exactly the same. No difference. I'm not talking about the, uh, the uh, boilerplates. I'm talking about the reason for decision in the GCMS note. In Gill, after the, I mean, I think that is Justice McCarthy, after he had written his decision in Gill before being published, he became aware of the decision in saying and the fact in that. So he now actually produced a postscript to his judgment, noting that, okay, I note the decision in this case, is the reason for decision by the visa officer in this case is exactly the same with that in the other case handled by my uh. colleague that have just been released. Wow. So what am I trying to say? Uh, what I'm trying to highlight this is relating to, in relation to one aspect of the Chinook software, which gives the visa officer the option when they have refused an application to tick a box that will not give them reason for refusal, they can copy and paste as reason for decision. That's impressive that Justice hard. McAfee spotted that. Holy oh, yeah, moly, yeah, it's worse. Yeah. It's worse. It's worse. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I applaud him for, you know, for, sure. for, for, for that observation. You know, so what I'm saying is this. Um, a visa officer that makes a refusal decision should be able to produce their reason rather than going to copy and paste. Copy and paste will just give you that, okay, let me just refuse the application up and then I go and copy reason. Yes. So these are concerns that should be raised and seriously considered with right. regards to adoption of this technology and AI technology by these immigration visa officers. One, it is going to perpetuate the existing buyers and the outcome is definitely gonna not gonna be fairer than what yeah. we have currently. Well, that's well, something... it might be more efficient, but it wouldn't be more fair. It would be more exactly. efficient for you, but it exactly. wouldn't be more fair. And I think that that's the that's kind of where Steve and I were at in our previous conversations around AI. Is that yes, uniformity, efficiency, all of that, wonderful, but um, isn't it an, inher an inherently human process and don't we wish for that effort to be put in and those rationales to be developed and you know can you can you develop the adjudicatory system without that well and that's something that i think we've raised on previous podcasts is one of the shocking things to me what about what we've uncovered through access to information acts about the use of artificial intelligence and in chinook is that i almost feel like you know, when you read a federal court case, you like to think that when you read the facts and the decision that you have an idea what happened in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And none of the decisions, because it was never really, from what I understand and can tell, brought to mm -hmm. the court's attention, was none of these decisions mentioned tiered types of applications through the use of artificial right. intelligence that are then put through a bulk processing tool like Chinook. And I just, it's made me realize that for a lot of these cases, reading the federal court cases or a federal court case doesn't really tell you what happened at the decision-making level. Yeah. They all operate also, under this myth that an officer reviewed everything in front of them, for and sure. having no indication as to this is a tier one, this is likely to be 
AI has flagged this as problematic. There are trigger words from Chinook. Yeah, but also like what you're saying, Steve, is that like, I know from my experience as an immigration lawyer that this set of facts would have led to a successful application if the applicant were from Vienna. But if the applicant were from Nigeria, then that would have caused this triage and that would have landed it in the hands of this particular adjudicator. And that in itself has a substantive effect on the outcome of that Mm -hmm. application. And so, I mean, the thing the thing that that um, Aditya, who was our guest on our our second AI um, podcast, was that even with garbage in, garbage out, like he made that same point as well, but he also said that any AI system needs to be supervised. And yeah. because, um, because, you know, um, because of the evolving nature of, of you know, decision-making and adjudication and all of that sort of thing. And that when the, the system is evolving and making assumptions, somebody needs to be there to determine whether or not those assumptions are ones that they wish to reinforce or to dispense yeah. of, you know? And so if that is not there, um, then, you know, then the system can, can run off course. And so it's just for me, given what we've seen about the adjudicative system so far run um, as it has, is that especially with the, the advent of this report, is that we don't like the course that it's taken. And even with all of these f- efforts and advocacy, it's been allowed to continue to be entrenched in this very discriminatory manner for all of this time. So uh, that's the worrying part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. Yeah. This has been very, very enlightening, Gideon. I really appreciate the insights you've brought today. Oh, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for, I mean, for having me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a super fan of your, um, your borderline podcast. I always have always listened to it. I think my, my favorite, of course, still remains your AI podcast, of course, because of my, <laughs> <laughs> my interest in that area. So I did enjoy it. And, you know, thank you so much. And uh, uh, Steve, of course, I follow you religiously on Twitter yeah. too, because uh, I mean, uh, my interest in immigration, of course, uh, you know, I was telling somebody uh, that was actually the person that suggested that you invite me on this program. That is uh, Emmanuel from EOLO. You know, I was telling him that um, I, I I get more information about Canadian, about IRCC from your Twitter page than I do from IRCC official page. Now, I'm oh, not yeah. saying that to, I'm not saying that to excite envy on IRCC, but I'm just saying that to let you know how much, you know, the information you disseminate is up appreciated out there yeah i don't know if someone has told you that before but if no one has done then uh, let me be the first to say it so please thank you so much and uh you know keep providing us those information because you know talking about this particular nigerian study application issue the letter to the minister and the report i mean those information basically came from your tweets you know the low declining approval rate the uh, uh, the report itself. So without that tweet, we probably would not be having this conversation today. Uh-huh. You know, the conversation around that discrimination and bias will not be having it. So what I'm trying to say is that your tweet actually go a long way in disseminating information that may eventually result in changed In outcome. law reform. Yeah. yeah. No, or maybe even in that's really media. amazing. 
No, it's not the power of social media, Steve. It's your insight. And I have to say that it's something quite remarkable. I hate Twitter. I really do because it's just the information superhighway. But you have a very discerning ability to like look at statistics and understand which ones are important and meaningful. Important, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't put out a thousand tweets, you put out 10 and they're the right ones. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, uh, there are very few people that have that ability to have that like incisive sense of what like what's worth tweeting. Um, and it brings everyone elevates the conversation. And so I 100 percent agree with Gideon that this is um, this is a very remarkable skill that you have. And uh, yeah. and also just to encourage other listeners, like I really love that you came forward, Gideon, and that you were like, hey, I would like to participate in this conversation. I think that that really is what Steve and I are hoping to evoke is like. Uh, you know, a conversation. That's kind of what was the the concept behind this. And, um, you know, people that are listening that that have things they wish to add. It was the same with Aditya, who was our guest on our our AI uh, podcast. He came forward based on hearing our earlier podcast on AI. So I think we're, we're, we're starting to 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 gather some momentum in terms of uh, really evoking uh, responses from our listeners, which I think is exactly the direction we've been hoping to go all this time. Yeah, yeah. and do uh, do let us know what um, you know you're able to do through the African Scholars Initiative. Because while I do, yes, I do, please, I do tweet the stats, what people do yeah. with those stats, and like the fact that those stats led to a letter to the minister. Um, you know, it's that type of stuff that I think the stats can form the basis for shining light on things that need changed, but like what you're doing with the African scholars initiative, I'm really curious to see uh, where it all leads. Because the data is like, the data is just too glaring, I think, to ignore. Yeah. You know, our interest in this, uh, sorry, our interest in this, of course, it's um, objective and very clear. Uh, I mean, um, we, I came in here as an international student and look at where I am today. I'm a, a law professor in a Canadian university after almost six years at the Department of Justice. You know, we are looking for people who will make that brilliant contribution to Canada, which is of course the objective of the African Scholars Initiative. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. our greatest obstacle, the biggest obstacle we have had and always have in achieving our objective has always been IRCC visa officers in mm-hmm. Africa, especially at the Nairobi visa office. So that is why we are having this conversation because we really need a change. And we're not doing this, we're doing this because that change will be a win-win for everyone. It will be a win-win for, a win for the international students from Africa, or the so-called Dati 30 seeking to come in here to study. It will be a win for the Canadian universities and institutions who thrive on the financial uh, tuition paid in by these students it would be a win for the Canadian economy also, you know. So I, I think um, if the immigration minister, the new immigration minister would take time to actually review that report, I continue to emphasize on this, seriously consider that report and make the necessary report in IRCC, that would be a very good thing for Canada. Meanwhile, yeah. I think that everybody should be looking for very strong test cases. Um, 
using all of these resources, including the statistics, including the report, um, maybe even contemplating bringing a charter application in, a, in the context of a judicial review application to see whether or not um, there are litigation avenues to, to press these issues. And, you know, again, the conversation we had about seeking directed verdicts, seeking costs um, to try and get at this from, from, from the litigation angle as well. And also to be, of course, important also, the possibility of actually filing a human rights complaint before the Canadian Human Rights Commission. That's mm -hmm. also another avenue of addressing this, you know. Of course. Well, it's again, it's getting very outside the box thinking like the way that, uh, you know, some of the litigators started doing habeas corpus actions. It's like really trying to think strategically about um, if this was uh, one of the remedies to some of the problems that were being faced uh, in the refugee context, like trying to think very creatively about how to, how to, how to um, move some of these very enduring systemic issues that are facing so many applicants across the board and not just living with the, <laughs> the rigidity of these yeah. uh, biases in our system.